Well, hello, everyone. This is Will Marshall. I'm president of the Progressive Policy Institute, and welcome to today's PPI podcast, uh, which is a conversation with uh, interesting and consequential national political leaders. Uh, and I'm really delighted today to uh, feature as our guest, uh, Representative Ron Kind of Wisconsin. Uh, Ron's been a great friend uh, of PPI's down the year and an inspiration to us as a leader of the New Democratic Coalition in the House. Uh, he is also, I should say, uh, he represents a third district of Wisconsin. Done that since 1997. Boy, I'd forgotten how long it's been. <laughs> and, uh, and he's a senior member of the House Ways and Means Committee and is one of the leading voices in Congress on agricultural issues, on uh, health care, and on trade. And I want to hope we can touch on many of those topics today, uh, Congressman. But first, just thanks very much for joining us. Uh, well, it's my pleasure. I've been a big fan of the work you do there at PPI. You're one of the great formal think tanks that we have here and uh, a great repository of new ideas that we need to be uh, pursuing here in Congress. So thanks for what you do. You've got a great team there and happy to be with you. Thanks a lot. Okay, well, look, uh, there are a lot of things I hope we have time to touch on, but uh, because it is the main drama in Washington, give us please just a quick uh, read on the big Biden uh, COVID relief package uh, and wh where you see it going. It looks like uh, we may be headed back toward a, a kind of reversion among the Republicans to a stance of pretty much uh, monolithic <laughs> opposition and obstruction. Maybe I shouldn't get ahead of the game here, but what's your uh, view from the House? How do you see this working out? Is it going to be strictly a partisan battle or is there any crossover possibility? Yeah, well, I sure hope it isn't. Uh, and it shouldn't be because the American people expect us to do two things and two things well right now. One is get shots in the arm and defeat this virus once and for all. And secondly, let's get this economy humming and firing on all cylinders and getting people back to work getting our children in the classrooms, getting people back to a sense of normalcy again, restore that national confidence that's been shaken over the last year. I don't know why Republicans are opposed to that uh, because this COVID package is in direct response to the feedback we're getting from folks back home and what they're up against, the challenges they face, the resources that they need right now from our frontline healthcare workers, um, providers who have been incredible this past year, the schools that are opening, uh, trying to open those classrooms, small businesses and how they've been hammered, uh, families who are struggling to pay bills, the rebate checks will be a godsend to so many million Americans that need help uh, right now. Um, and ultimately, and most importantly in the bill, is more resources for getting shots in the arm, for testing, for tracing, and for getting out ahead of these stronger, more potent variants that are landing on our shore right now. So our message is clear. We're going to stay focused on that North Star. We want to work with our Republican colleagues. This should be a bipartisan process. We'll find out where it ends up at the end of the day. Right. Well, thanks. I, you know, uh, it's going to go through on reconciliation. Uh, the House will vote on that. And uh, that means that it could pass on a strictly partisan basis. But I know that uh, a lot of people, including President Biden, would prefer that that not be the case. It's hard for me to see how the Republicans would just kind of stand against it uh, and have nothing to show, you know, when they go back to face their constituents. But then, uh, uh, 
it's early yet. We'll see how th this plays out. But thanks for that. Do you see pretty much democratic unity around all parts of this package? Or are there qualms about the size of it? It is big. It's ambitious. There's a lot of spending there. Uh, people are saying uh, it could be targeted better. How do the how do the new Dems and you kind of think about that? Yeah, you know, well, the the urgency of the moment is requiring uh, more speed in legislating, and that's not always our first preference. In fact, it's never our first preference uh, in a package this big. There will always be things you can easily point to and say, you know, I wish we could have done that differently. I, I probably don't fully embrace that concept, uh, but that's the na nature of trying to legislate at the at the speed of light uh, in order to protect and save lives and get this economy back on its right. feet. And a growing economy with jobs being created is the greatest social welfare program we can have and the greatest self-confidence booster that the American people uh, can have right now too. So I, I don't think this is the perfect response to what we need, but again, our starting point is by listening to people back home and what mm -hmm. they need. We're being responsive to that. Now, there's some, pretty you know, strange budget rules in the Senate that might exclude some provisions in it uh, through the process that's being used. You know, we knew that going in too, but by and large, I think President Biden, his administration knows what action is needed. He's been working very closely with Congress. You know, as a side note, I just mentioned that some of my Republican colleagues have quietly told me that they've been down to the White House more often in the first four weeks of this administration than they were in the last four years of the previous, and that's the way it's supposed to work. A president recognizing a co-equal branch that he's got to reach out to, listen to, work with, and try to get things done together. Uh, and that's the, the leadership style that Joe Biden is, is showing right now. As you say, this isn't the time to make uh, the perfect the enemy of the good. Um, so uh, let's talk a minute about the New Dem Coalition. You're really one of the seminal leaders of that group. That's the biggest, uh, the biggest uh, grouping, uh, philosophical grouping in the House on the Democratic side. Uh, how do you see the NDC's role in this new Congress with a, you know, with a Biden coalition that's very broad? It runs the gamut from AOC and, you know, uh, folks on the left to to folks uh, to 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 the NDC's right. So to, just tell me, you know, what are the key issues where you see the NDC make making a big contribution? Well, first of all, again, I want to come back and thank PPI. You've been kind of the, the intellectual uh, godparents of the New Dem Coalition from way back when. And I was one of the founding members. Uh, and I can most assuredly tell people it's in great leadership hands right now. Susan Dalbeni took over as chair of the New Dem Coalition. She'll be terrific. She's been a great member with the coalition, a close friend, great member of mine on the Ways and Means Committee. Uh, and we just have a lot of really bright new young members that have found a home with the New Dem Coalition. I think we're at about 100 members or so. Uh, very pragmatic. Uh, these are bridge builders, not uh, arsonists. They want to make Congress work. They believe in the institution. They also believe in finding common ground and doing the best we can to work in a bipartisan way, too. So I have just nothing but uh, great confidence and optimism in where the New Dems are and the important role that that coalition is gonna, gonna play over the next couple of years in forming the coalitions that we need to get things done for the American people. Uh, and I'm excited about it. Thanks, we, uh, Susan, Susan Delbeni was just on the series. So uh, we've had a great chance to get acquainted, the new leader, and uh, 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 I'm sure she's gonna play a really critical role here in, 
as Biden tries to govern in this kind of broad and bracing way. Um, so uh, let me, you mentioned your constituents and that's, uh, that's really intriguing. Let's, let's kind of talk about that a little bit more. If you would mind, talk a little about your district because you're a little bit uh, different, you know, on the Democratic side in that you represent a more rural district. Uh, so tell us, tell us a little bit uh, uh, about your district, if, if you wouldn't mind. Yeah, you know, it is uh, rural Western Wisconsin, everything west of Madison, more miles along the Mississippi River than any other congressional district. Incredibly beautiful, very diverse economically. Yes, we have production agriculture. We have some of the most uh, outstanding healthcare providers in the world, from Mayo to Gunderson to Marshfield, uh, along with the myriad of, of rural clinics and rural hospitals. Um, and it's a mecca for higher education. I have six of the 11 state universities in Wisconsin in my congressional district. So we're very proud uh, of higher education, four of the tech schools, the vocational education opportunities, uh, and a lot of blue collar uh, labor uh, in it as well. It's one of the last generally swing districts we have in our country, which right. I'm sad. I really am because gerrymandering has made a mockery of, of these congressional maps. And most of my colleagues today fear primary challenges rather than the general election. And that's not good because it's going to further polarize our nation, drive us apart. I can't tell you how many of my Republican colleagues I've reached out to uh, to work on issues together. And they tell me point blank, Ron, you're a great guy. I'd love to work with you. But if I'm seen standing next to you, I'll lose my next primary. Literally, any affiliation uh, with the Democrat. And that's true on the Democratic side, affiliating with Republicans. And I'm, it's sad that we're at this state in our country where we can't even reach out and form some trust and, and friendships across the aisle to get things out without being punished by the base of our party. So that's one thing I wish I had a magic wand and I could fix, but that's the essence of my district. It's, it's a swing district that's more moderate. Uh, uh, President Trump carried it the last two elections. He, he won it by five points uh, just last year. Mm -hmm. uh, so I'm one of those unique Democrats uh, right. sitting in a district that President Trump has carried twice now. Well, yeah, thank you. So it kind of puts you right there at ground zero in, in American politics, uh, not just your district, but the whole state of Wisconsin, as we saw in the last election. But um, you, you remind me that uh, uh, your district is one of just 16 that split their votes, that is, that voted differently in the presidential than for the local co member of Congress, which is remarkable. It's uh, Ticket splitting is just almost down to nothing in America, just to buttress your point about that. Uh, you mentioned that, you know, President Trump won your district and not surprisingly, you know, more rural districts, a lot of white, white, white color, like, excuse me, white, blue collar voters uh, have been a, a key source of his support. Um, did he overperform? I mean, I think he did most everywhere. Did he improve on his 2016 uh, uh, showing in your district? Yeah, he, he did. He, he did increase his numbers there. The turnout on their side was incredible. Uh, I would also mention that I, I'd never received more votes personally than I did last fall. Uh, and yet President Trump uh, just drove a lot more people out to the polls that right. uh, weren't traditional voters uh, in the past. Whether that can be sustained without him on the ticket, I think is the big question uh, as we're looking around the corner at the midterms uh, coming up. Uh, they certainly weren't there in 2018 uh, during his first midterm. And, and therefore, you know, I carried my district 60-40 uh, in 18. Mm -hmm. but time it was just by a few points uh so but we're in a very unhealthy dynamic will in our democracy right now with the tribalism that's overtaken 
really on both sides and for many people. And they're gravitating to those sources of information that merely reconfirms their biases and pre-existing prejudices. And that's true on both sides too. So that's a big challenge. And what's fundamental in a democracy is we can't reach common ground and form the coalitions we need to get things done unless there's a basic foundation of truth and what the facts are. And we are far removed from that world right now. And January 6th is a classic example of the big lie that was perpetrated on half the population where they believed that the election was stolen, that, that there was fraud involved, that Joe Biden wasn't duly elected, and, and it led to the insurrection in our nation's capital. And that's a very dangerous place for us to be right now. Well, your point about sort of dueling political realities and sources of information and worlds is really important. And uh, you know, I want to hone in on that a little bit by asking you about, yeah, okay, so he did a little bit better, not only in your district, but he, basically across the country, and he still lost the presidential election. But how did it happen? In other words, you're a big proponent of uh, more uh, focus on rural health, I know. And, uh, you know, and Tony Fabrizio, the president's pollster, put out something, which I wrote about, that said, you know, basically, COVID hurt him, may, probably cost him re-election. It was the most, single most important vulnerability that he had uh, in his race, uh, and yet he, he did so well kind of, you know, around the country. Uh, why didn't voters uh, in your district, you think, appreciate uh, the lack of leadership on, on COVID by the, our, our former president? You know, I, it's great. I've been trying to figure this out myself. And one thing I do come back to is in rural parts of America, COVID has been less of an issue because just by geography, it's easier for people in rural America to separate themselves on the farm. Uh, they have a place out in the countryside. Uh, you're not congregated as they are in large cities where you're brushing up against people all the time. So when you got a viral spread like COVID is, yeah. uh, it, it's less of a concern, less of a life-threatening situation in rural America as it is in the suburbs and, and in urban uh, areas. And so, you know, whether they treated that less seriously as a consequence, I can tell you that there was a lot less face mask wearing in rural mm -hmm. parts of the district uh, than anywhere else that I that I went. And it's because people felt it wasn't that necessary. So the fact that the president wasn't treating it as seriously, and in fact, in his own words, was downplaying the entire virus, uh, probably didn't have as big an impact in rural America. Right. Well, I, uh, I said this to uh, Susan Delbeni last time. I would really love to see uh, somehow uh, you know, the NDC could bring along some of your counterparts on the left wing of the Democratic Party to your, to your districts, just to get them out of the deep blue, indigo blue urban districts, just to see how, you know, how life is different, how political outlooks are different, uh, and appreciate the full diversity of the country, because I think there might be more sympathy then for the positions that, you know, Democrats take take in who are dealing with more balanced electorates, more diverse, you know, uh, more philosophically diverse electorates. But you, you've talked and written uh, some really smart things about how our party could do better in small cities uh, and uh, the countryside in, in, the, in this country. Talk a little bit about that, please, and, and what you think are maybe some of the pitfalls to avoid. You know, what are the, some of the things that make Democrats more vulnerable uh, unnecessarily vulnerable when they go to speak to uh, voters outside the big urban centers? You know, 
the first rule in politics, I, I always believe is you got to show up and you get a lot of credit by showing up and just listening, listening, because you respect people by doing that. Uh, you signal that you care about them, that they are important, that they're worthy of consideration. And I think we Democrats need to up our game in sh just showing up in rural parts of the country, because I'm very comfortable with the policies of the new Dem coalition and work you guys do with PPI and the issues of the day and being able to sell that in rural America. And I look back over the last four years of the Trump administration, and, and you're hard pressed to show anything that they really did that helped rural America. I mean, they didn't support the, the rural hospitals and the rural schools the way they needed. He didn't embrace an infrastructure investment for rural roads and highways and bridges like we needed. Um, um, he, uh, uh, with all his tariff wars and trade, it was devastating to my family farmers. We had record family farm bankruptcies in Wisconsin the last three years because of the trade war that was going on. And let's face it, agriculture is a big exporting industry. Uh, we're very good at producing goods that we can export to a hungry world. And he made that difficult with the barriers that he erected. So policy-wise, we were on solid grounds, but we got to show up and make that case uh, to, right. to the people in, in rural America and make sure that they know that we care about their, their livelihood and their children's future, especially. Mm -hmm. Uh, let's talk about trade for a second, because, uh, you know, you've, you've been a leader on that and it hadn't always been easy. I know <laughs> uh, as, as a group that thinks trade on balance is good for the country. We've, we've also been in the, in the crossfire that happens within the Democratic Party sometimes on this issue. Um, there's something that uh, President Biden hadn't emphasized as much. For example, I haven't heard him say, you know, we ought to rectify Trump's very first mistake, which was to kill the Trans-Pacific Partnership. I mean, if you want to contain China, which I think everybody does, uh, that was not the way to do it. You would go the other way. You'd, you'd get into a trading relationship with all the countries around China that are trying not to be dominated by it. But just on the issue in general, do you see an appetite among new Democrats and Democrats generally for sort of getting back to uh, agreements that are in the country's interest, that, you know, both on economic grounds and security grounds like that one? Absolutely well. And again, with your guys' help at PPI, the New Down Coalition has really been the center of gravity in helping with a very proactive trade agenda, regardless of the administration. And we're upbeat uh, with President Biden and the new administration and the team he's putting together that we can get trade back on the, uh, on, on the right uh, rails again. Um, we've got a great USTR nominee in Catherine Tai. She mm -hmm. comes from uh, committee staff on Ways and Means and close friend. We've worked closely with her very confident in her capabilities at USTR. Uh, President Biden also appreciates we have to do some immediate damage repair in our trading relations, especially with our closest friends and allies. And with President Trump's imposition of those so-called 232 national security tariffs hitting our closest allies made no sense. There was no case to be made there. And we need to uh, reverse that and get back in good graces and in a true partnership with them. Because that ultimately is gonna lead to the type of global influence we need to have over China today. And I agree with President Biden's attempt to form an international coalition of like-minded nations that share our values, that wanna elevate the standards of trade upwards and put pressure on China to be a good global partner in all of this. And you mentioned TPP and the fact that one of the first things President Trump did when he was elected was turn his back on that multinational trade agreement in the fastest growing economic region in the world, by the way, the Pacific Rim area. And now we're in the position of being on the outside looking in and not being a participant 
of that huge economic opportunity, but equally important, what was in the TPP contained all the structural reforms that we've been demanding China to make. At some point, China's gonna want in on that block too. And I still think it's one of the best avenues we have of accomplishing our shared bipartisan goals when it comes to China, uh, but through that multilateral context of TPP. So listen, I've had conversations with President Biden about this already and Catherine Tai and his team about what that path forward looks like. It won't happen overnight. There's a lot of other uh, repair items that we have to address first, but we ought to be developing that plan of how we can get back into that Trans-Pacific Partnership and uh, quite frankly, with the new USMCA trade agreement with Mexico and Canada, most of that was cut and paste from TPP. So our right. transition from USMCA to TPP won't be that big a stretch. There'll be some things we'll want changed and modified, clearly, uh, and, and President Biden's correct in asking for that. Uh, but I'm glad that what we did with our clo two closest border neighbors and two biggest trading partners is very consistent with what TPP is all about. Right, we, we were kind of amazed, you know, but Trump called uh, NAFTA, you know, the biggest disaster in, in world history. And then he called TPP the worst trade agreement ever. And then he kind of just blended them together. You know, he took good elements uh, of TPP to make NAFTA even better. So it was a kind of a incoherent trade policy and one that farmers showed remarkable forbearance. I couldn't believe it, you know, traveling around Iowa and Midwest, of course, your district is, right. is very, you know, how he got away uh, with his tariff policy uh, with farmers is uh, kind of one of the besetting mysteries. Well, he, <laughs> but, he basically bribed them, Will, with that CCP <laughs> account of $30 billion. So it was direct right. cash transfer to the farmers that he used because of the the economic up impact that they suffered with this trade policies. And we, we were literally borrowing money from China that we had distribute to our family farmers because they could no longer sell their product to China. <laughs> How crazy the Trump policies were. And that's just unsustainable. We just can't continue having 40% of farm income based on federal subsidy payments to them. No right. business, no industry can be sustained that way. And our farmers don't want it that way. They just wanna be able to compete uh, in a good marketplace where they can sell into, including a good global marketplace that they can sell into. Right. Um, well, uh, tell me, uh, you know, what, what you're thinking about uh, President Biden's political challenge. You know, uh, he, uh, for some reason, he's not doing the State of the Union address this week. We all thought that was gonna happen, but I guess it'll happen next week. But. What do you think you ought to say, and particularly with the, an eye on this kind of civil war within the Republican Party? In other words, you've got you've got a really extreme, hyper extreme wing, and they're all marching with uh, a discredited, in my eyes, president. But you've also got a lot of people who understand that they've lost. Now, that's been a losing strategy. They've lost the suburbs. They lost the House. They lost the Senate. They lost the White House. Uh, you know, how does how does President Biden kind of walked this line where he's reaching out to the reasonable and pragmatic elements of the Republican Party that know that that kind of uh, hate-fueled populism that Trump represents is, is also a political loser for their party. You know, as you mentioned at the top of this call, you know, I've been here for a little while, so I've gone through some administrations and that, and I've, I've seen this thing play out. But I think one of the, the biggest challenges and perhaps one of the biggest frustrations he'll face is a Republican Party in Congress that's just all about no. 
regardless of what the issue is, and just go into lockdown mode, not cooperate with him, uh, as they did under President Obama, unfortunately, and all lives on the midterms and what the political fallout of that will be. But at a time of a crisis like we're in right now, healthcare and economic, presidents have the ability to go over the heads of Congress and make the case directly to the American people, uh, but more importantly, listen to the American people, what they want and need, and react to that. And we're seeing this in the COVID package. There's overwhelming bipartisan support across America for the COVID package, but very little, if any, Republican support in Congress for it. And I think the same could be true with infrastructure. Included in that is broadband expansion, especially in rural areas like my, mine. That is a nonpartisan issue. Doing a better job of bringing down the cost of healthcare is a nonpartisan issue. And making sure people have the skills and the education they need to be full participants of this global economy is a nonpartisan issue. President Biden is in a position to make that case, but also to form that national coalition behind many of these policies, regardless of what you know, Republicans in Congress uh, may want to do. Right. Um, so anything else that you're, you would particularly like to hear from him in a State of the Union address, something you think the, the public and particularly the, the uh, persuadable public needs to hear from a Democratic president? Uh, I think we all need to be, every one of us in elected position need to be making the case of how important it is to stand up for the institutions of democracy and to make sure that those civil bonds of unity that should be uniting us as a country is nurtured, that we don't start tribalizing and turning our backs on our friends and neighbors and family members. And we're in a very toxic political environment, which can't be sustained that long short of civil war. And I'm very concerned about that. I mean, January 6th might be the tip of a very bad iceberg uh, heading our way. And it's because of this alternate reality that's been created. I think all of us have an obligation to agree on a common set of facts, what truth means uh, in today's society, and, and push back hard against those forces seeking to drive us apart and spread misinformation uh, uh, that's been too rampant lately. Yeah, uh, amen to that. Uh, and I think you put your finger on, you know, where the how we start to immunize our politics against extremism, and that is just getting the facts straight. You know, getting a one set of reference points and not uh, not permitting people to get away with living in separate realities, but uh, privileging an objective reality again, and 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 understanding that you can't believe things simply because it's comfortable for you to believe them. <laughs> <laughs> you got to be able to prove them, uh, but that's 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 a tough job in the in the information ecoscape we're facing now. Look, I'm told we're just about out of time. Uh, so, uh, just uh, lastly, uh, he, President Biden also f faces some you know considerable pressure from his left go to go even bigger uh, to not in fact find common ground <laughs> with Republicans uh, to put unity aside. Because, you know, the logic is Democrats have a narrow majority. We've only got two years. If you don't do it all now, you'll never get a chance to do it. So anything else is just an irresponsible uh, squandering of this moment. How would you respond to that, maybe with an eye to looking ahead to the midterm elections? I think the next two years is going to prove to be a test in regards to what party truly is the big tent party in America. More representative of that vast mosaic of what makes America great. And the Republicans right now, with the cult of personality, have their own internal civil war struggles. 
that are taking place. But we too on the Democratic side are going to be challenged of maintaining a broad-based, inclusive coalition that really does represent America and the best of America. And these next two years is kind of buckle up and hang on and let's see what happens in both parties. All right. Well, thank you very much. And I just know that uh, uh, with folks like you and the new Dems behind him, Joe Biden's going to have a real shot at, at, at succeeding along these lines. Well, listen, it's always a pleasure. I can't tell you uh, how grateful we are for the chance to cut into your busy day and talk to you about uh, some things that are on our mind and I know they're on your mind. So thanks for taking the time, Ron, and we, uh, we look forward to seeing you as soon as everybody is vaccinated. We can. <laughs> yeah, amen to that. Happy to vote well and, and keep up the great work you guys are doing at PPI. We, we really do appreciate it. So stay safe and thanks. Thank you. Thanks. Take care.